If you're visiting with us, again, it is uh, uh, our honor to have you. We're so thankful that you are here. We read the Word of God. I preach the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We go through the Bible because you don't need to hear another man's opinion. You want to hear what God says in the Word of God. So we do that. The topic of my sermon, the theme of my sermon, must come from the text of Scripture. So I want you to see that as I point you back to the text over and over and over. That's where the authority comes. And we're going through the book of James. It's a very practical book written by a man named James who was the brother of our Lord Jesus. The book of James is a very practical book all about faith in action. He wants early Jewish Christians to live out your Faith. And today we come to a very practical portion of the word, James 2, verses 21 to 26. Follow with me, though. Let's just go back to verse 14. James 2, and I'm just going to read the whole paragraph beginning in verse 14. Here's what God says in the word. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well, but the demons also believe, and they shudder. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The account is told in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus told his early disciples to go out into the deep waters of the Sea of Galilee, and they were to let down their nets for a catch. It's found in Luke chapter 5. Well, the disciples end up going. They do that. They obey their Lord. But Peter said, Master, we, we fished all night and we caught nothing, but we will do as you say. So they went out and they fished, and as they were fishing, they brought in such a huge quantity of fish that the nets began to break, according to verse 6. 
And then in verse 8, Peter the Apostle, knowing that it was the Lord who told them to do this, he fell at Jesus' feet and he said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Verse 9, Peter was overwhelmed at the amazement of the power and the majesty of Jesus. And then in verse 10, the final concluding summary of this section, Luke 5, verse 10, Jesus said to the disciples, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. You're going to have a new life work, guys. Completely new life work, new vocation, new priorities, new way of life. Everything is going to change. Next verse, Luke 5, 11. So they left everything and they followed him. They left everything and they followed him. I want to know, how did that happen? I mean, how do you make that decision to just leave everything to have a new way of life, a new master, a new king, a new mission, a new purpose of life, and you're living for Christ? It's because the disciples saw the majesty and the kingship and the power of Jesus. I mean, imagine with me, you behold the mercy of Almighty God. You, you see the compassion of Jesus Christ. You, you behold such a humble God that he left heaven to clothe himself with real humanity, to be born into the world that he made in order to save lost sinners. Such a saving God. He's so driven, he's so passionate, he's so single-minded, he's so inviting and available and wooing to sinners. He's patient. He's not willing that any should perish. He is a perfect Savior, a complete Savior. He's an active God. He's aware. He's involved. He's loving. He's the creator. He is so powerful, he can command the sea with his word, and he can do the miracle of bringing fish after they had fished all night and caught nothing. What is it that made these men leave everything to follow Jesus? They saw the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And my goal for us is to see our Savior. I want you to behold God. I want you to see the the glory of God, the bigness of God, the amazing plan of your salvation. And if and when you do, you will speedily hasten on in sanctification. I love the way David put it in Psalm 119. He said, I run in obedience to your commandments. Or later on in Psalm 119, verse 60, he said, I hastened and I did not delay to keep your word. I mean, now think about that for a moment. What is it that drives you, that compels you to hurry in life? What drives you to hurry in life? For David, the psalmist, it was, I want to follow God. 
And I love how the Bible is so clear and so helpful in telling us that the ultimate result of the Spirit's work in saving your soul is a faithful, ongoing walk of sanctification. How do you know that you're truly a Christian? It's not that you made a decision 25 years ago. It's not that you prayed a prayer, raised a your hand, signed a card, asked Jesus into your heart, had a religious experience that was meaningful to you, that might have happened, but that's not what saves you. How do you know that God has genuinely worked in your soul? It's all those whom God converts, he will conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. All those whom God saves, he sanctifies. When God saves a man, he changes that man progressively through life until he makes it to glory. And that's what James, the pastor, the writer of our letter, is teaching. He is writing to early Jewish Christians, and he is calling them to faith in action. James, in this five-chapter little letter, is giving wisdom because he says, Christian, I want your faith to prove itself. You've seen people like this, you know people like this, they say that they're a Christian, and it's almost like you think, well, prove it. I mean, show me with your life. I look at you, I hear you, I observe you, and there doesn't seem to be a love for God. Prove it. And that's what James is doing in this book. He is writing to the early Christians, and he says, I want you to have a real faith. I want you to have a genuine faith, a working faith, a demonstrating faith. I want you to have an active faith. Now, last week, we began sort of part one. Today's going to be part two of this section, which I read, James 2, 14 to 26. Now, last week was a tough section. You'll remember, James 2, 14 to 20 is all about this truth. You can profess your faith all day long, but if you don't have a demonstration of works, your faith is worthless. You can give lip service all you want to God, but if you don't have the ongoing progressive habit of obeying God in your life, we're not talking perfection, but we're talking a progression, a direction of godliness. If that's not there, James says your faith is worthless. And we looked at five ways in which that was the case last week. But now today, beginning in verse 21, we learn that your profession of faith with the demonstration of action, that is a vibrant faith. That is a living faith. So last week was a dead faith. Today, we're going to look at the living faith. Last week, I gave you five reasons, five descriptions of a dead faith. Today, what I want to do is I want to give you the two examples that James gives of a living, dynamic, real faith. How do you know you're a Christian? Prove it. Live it out. You say that you follow Jesus. You say that you've got faith in Christ. Show it. Demonstrate it. What does it look like to have that in our lives? For James, the writer of this book, a justifying faith is a faith that will show itself in good works. That is to say, a faith, if it's genuine, that really saves is a faith that will inevitably work. 
Now listen carefully. God does not save you because of your works. No one will ever go to heaven because of their works. No one. The only way somebody goes to heaven is when God saves someone by his grace and they simply trust in the Lord Jesus alone for salvation. But a true faith, when God saves that person, will always be a working faith. It will always be an obedient faith as this progressive journey through life seeks to honor the Lord. Again, we're not talking perfection. We're not talking a perfect lifestyle. No one can do that this side of heaven. But if God gives you the justifying faith, he will enable your accompanying works. Now, here's how James is going to make that case very, very clear. In our text today, James 2, 21 to 26, God is going to provide us two examples of a living faith. Two examples, and this is our outline. This is what I'm going to go with for our time. Number one, you can jot these two points down. We're going to look at Abraham. Abraham is the first example, but don't miss this. True faith shows itself in love for God. That's Abraham's example. True faith shows itself in love for God. The second example that we're going to look at in verses 25 and 26 is Rahab. True faith shows itself in love for others. Abraham has a love for God, as it is seen, we're going to see it here, and Rahab in her love for others. These are the examples of a living faith. And as you hear me preach these verses from God's word, measure yourself by what you see here. Again, the goal is not perfection. The goal is you profess. Does your walk, does your life, does your practice validate your profession? James is not writing in order to teach you how to get saved. Paul's going to do that in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere. What James is doing, he's already writing to Christians. They're already believers. He wants them to not have a dead orthodoxy. He wants them to grow in their faith. Two examples of a living faith. Number one, if you're taking notes, let's start with Abraham. Abraham, true faith shows itself in love for God. Now look at it right here in your Bible. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? I mean, what a, what a good question. We could all ask this. How do you know if your profession is valid? Jesus would say in John 21, do you love me? Do you love me? And then a third time, do you love me? Moses said in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. At the end of Joshua's life, he was the successor to Moses. Joshua was leading the people of Israel into the promised land. And he said, take diligent heed so that you will love the Lord your God. Joshua 23, 11. What a great concluding word to the nation as the leader is dying. Be careful that you love the Lord your God. The Apostle Paul said to the church in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are cursed. 
And then the very last verse of Ephesians 6, verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. What does God want? He wants you to live out your Christian life as a true faith that shows itself in love for God. Now, if you love God, three things are going to happen. If you love God, you're going to obey him. Second, if you love God, you're going to identify with him. And then third, if you really love God, you're going to pursue him more. You're going to pursue him. You're going to want to know more about him. You're going to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that's what James, the pastor, is saying here to the believers. In verse 21, he says, Consider Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Let's just examine Abraham. And James calls him our father. He calls him our father because he's the progenitor of the Jewish people, Genesis 12 tells us. Romans 9, Romans 11 tells that as well. He is the father of the nation of Israel. He's the father of the Jewish people. But yet we also learn in Galatians 3 that Abraham is the father of all who by faith trust in Jesus Christ. Abraham is the spiritual father because we have the faith of Abraham, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. James is such a great writer. He says, let's, let's, let's have an example. Let's consider Abraham. The ultimate example. He's writing to early Jewish Christians. What a great example. Let's just consider the father of the Jewish people, Abraham. Wasn't he justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Think of it like this. Wasn't his faith validated? Wasn't his faith proven? Wasn't his faith shown when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You think, now that's a little odd. What, What is that referring to? Keep your finger here, and I want all of you to turn back with me to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. Now, you've got to see this because this is an amazing chapter. This is a true chapter, a historical chapter. And here's the example. Our father Abraham, let's just consider how his faith was genuinely seen in his life. Well, Genesis chapter 22, follow with me, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Verse 2, he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Hold on, time out, pause, stop. God, this son is the son of the promise that through this one son, all the descendants will be blessed. The covenant will continue through him. And yet you want me to take my son, my only son, the one whom I love, Isaac, and kill him? 
kill him. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Interesting, there's no whining, there's no complaining, there's no questions. Obey. He obeys. He obeys. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and he saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad, we will go over there. We will worship, get this, we will return to you. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Now, I'm not sure what that was like when you're putting Isaac on the altar. I don't know if there was a little wrestling match that happened or what. But he binds his son, puts wood on the altar to kill his son. We read in verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father? And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but, but, but where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. They came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay the son. Pause right there. I've got one son. I don't know if I'd want to do this. You're lifting the knife to thrust it into your son. What happens? Verse 11, the angel, the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide as it is this day in the mount of the Lord. It will be provided. What a story! But this isn't myth. It's not made up. This actually happened. Was not Abraham our father justified by works. Was not his faith proven by his works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Back to James chapter 2 in your Bible. Go back there. Abraham's faith, which existed, was working with his works And because of Abraham's action, we read in verse 22 that faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, his faith was perfected. He already had a faith. You see it there at the end of verse 23. He already had a faith, but now it's a great word. It's completed. The faith is maturing. The faith is demonstrated. The faith is developed. Abraham already had faith. He already believed. But now the faith is 
maturing. The faith is visible. The faith is developed. You know, many years later when Jesus was walking in Jerusalem, he was being accused and assaulted by many of the Jewish leaders. And on one occasion, Jesus spoke to the hostile Jewish leaders and he said to them, do the deeds of Abraham. I mean, follow the pattern of Abraham. He believed in me. Follow the pattern of Abraham. That's exactly what James is saying right here. Follow the obedient life of Abraham. See how his faith in God was demonstrated through his love for God. And look in your Bible at James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You know where that's a quote from? Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham was saved In Genesis 15, when he believed on the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. But later on in Genesis 22, probably 30 or 40 years after that salvation experience, Abraham continues to obey God. He sinned along the way, to be sure. But his habit of obedience, his habit of following God was proving and demonstrating that his faith was genuine. Why does James quote Genesis chapter 15? Abraham believed on the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's why. Because James wants us to know that Abraham had already been saved by faith in Genesis 15, but a Genesis 15 faith will always show itself in a Genesis 22 obedience. If you really believe on the Lord and he actually saves you and you are now counted as righteous, not because of your own good deeds, but because of what Jesus has done for you. If God has actually saved you, you're going to demonstrate that in a life of obedience. Justification produces sanctification. Imputed righteousness that saves you positionally will always enable you to live a lifelong righteousness that will sanctify you practically. But you don't even do that in your own power. God, the Holy Spirit, produces that fruit in you. So hear this again. What is James doing? He says, let's look at Abraham. Let's look at the example of Abraham, our father. And if, if there is a genuine belief that saves Genesis 15, it will inevitably result in a Genesis 22 life of obedience to God. And if we had the time, we could read much of Hebrews chapter 11 on this. So much is recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 19, about how Abraham was a man who lived by faith. Lived by faith. Well, what happens? Look at the end of James 2, 23. This little phrase tucked in there. I want you to see it. James 2, 23. After Abraham believed God and it was 
credited to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You believe on the Lord? You trust in him alone? You're living a life seeking to obey and follow the Savior? You're a friend of God. What does that mean, to be a friend of God? Here's what it includes. To be a friend of God includes communication. You talk with a friend. You converse with a friend. Not only communication, it also includes, second, affection. You, you, you have a genuine, heartfelt love for your friend. You, you, you care for your friend. You have a compassion, don't you, for your friends. You have a compassion for them. To be a friend of God includes affection. Third, it includes loyalty. There's an allegiance with that friend. There's a, there's a loyalty to that friend. There's a faithfulness. You're, you're a trusted friend. Oh, to be a friend of God. Includes communication, affection, loyalty. It also includes the presence of God. The presence that you enjoy the company of one another. To to be a friend of God means that there's an enjoyment being in the company with one another. To be a friend of God includes enjoyment. You just want to be with them. You just want to be with them. There's an enjoyment there. And then, number six, there's a very close intimacy in a good friendship, a nearness. There's a circle of God's closest intimate care that a child of God has and enjoys with him. Abraham believed, and he has been living a life of obedience. He's a friend of God. A friend of God. Can I just ask, do you know anything of this and what it's like to be a friend of God? I mean, if you're not a friend of God, then you're a foe of God. You you, you must be a friend of God or you're a blasphemous rebel at war with God. And Jesus, toward the very end of his life, he said in John chapter 15, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you a slave, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. What's the point of all of this in James's argument here in James 2? Abraham believed in the Lord. He was saved, Genesis 15, but now he has proven, he has demonstrated, he has validated, he has shown that through a life of obedience and the particular situation he offered his son. What's the Isaac in your life. Take your Isaac, whom you love. Yeah, that. That thing you love. Your career. 
Your schooling, your education, your degrees, your money, your hobbies, that relationship. Are you willing to part with that because you love the Lord? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, that one, and offer him. But, but why? Does it make sense? Why would I do that? I don't want to do that. Everything's telling me not to do that. Out of love for God. Your career, your hobbies, your finances, your schooling. And God calls you to be a missionary. No, 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 I don't want to. I love what I'm doing in life too much. But what if God calls you away from this to something else? Are you willing to obey the Lord and serve him with even the beloved Isaac in your life? Whatever that is. Because you love the Lord. Is he worth it to you? Do you love him that much? And that's what Abraham does. That's the example. Oh, he was saved by faith in Genesis 15, but now he he continues to demonstrate that in Genesis 22. May the Lord help us to live that out, that we would be like Abraham. And point number one here, true faith shows itself in love for God. Love for God. Now, number two. By the way, before we move on to number two, look at the transition verse at verse 24. If you take this verse and yank it out of context, you're going to have some wacky, wrong theology. But if you keep it in context, it makes perfect sense. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James is not saying you get to heaven by your good works and not by faith alone. Some of our Roman Catholic friends are taught that that's what this means. But that's the farthest thing from James's mind. He's already taught that Abraham was saved and justified by faith. But now he proves and demonstrates and validates and evidences the genuineness of his faith by his obedience. That's all James is saying. You demonstrate your genuine salvation by a life of works and not merely by a profession or lip service alone. So that's Abraham, number one. That's the first example. Now in your heading, in your outline, number two, the second example we have is Rahab. Rahab. Oh, what an example here. Rahab, true faith shows itself in love for others. Fasten your seatbelt. Abraham and Rahab could not be more opposite. I mean, Abraham was a man. Rahab was a woman. Abraham's the father of the Jews. Rahab was a pagan Canaanite. Abraham was a wealthy elite man. Rahab was not well-to-do, nor was she prominent at all. 
Abraham was a very honorable man. Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham's the father of the Jews. Rahab is of the enemies of the Jews. Abraham was moral. Rahab, immoral. Abraham was a great leader. Rahab was a lowly citizen. I mean, the very bottom of society. What's the point of all of this? God can justify and use and sanctify any and all who trust in him. Whatever your background, wherever you come from, whatever place of life, no issue for the power of God. To save, to sanctify, to wash, and to use you for his glory. And what's even more astonishing than that, both Abraham, that's not really all that surprising here, but and Rahab are in the messianic line. Jesus comes from them. Amazing. We just call that grace. Grace. Well, look at what James says. He's already talked about Abraham, the example there. He offered his son. He loved God. He obeyed God. Now, verse 25. Look at James 2, 25. In the same way. Look at the second example. Notice the words. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot? Wasn't she justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? I mean, Look at Rahab. Look at her life. She's a woman. She's an example of godly faith in action. She's an example of godly living. And you know what Hebrews chapter 11 tells us in verse 31? She was a woman of obedient faith. In Hebrews 11.31, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. Well, what did she do? What what is Rahab? What, What is the story all about? Take your Bible, go back to Joshua chapter 2. After the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy, then go to Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. The people of Israel are just about to enter into the promised land. After hundreds of years of God making promises, and now he's going to fulfill that and bring in the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. Look at Joshua chapter 2. Let's just begin in verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from the city of Shittim, saying, go, view the land, especially the city of Jericho. That's like the first stop along the way. When you cross the Jordan River, that's like the first city you come to. Okay, I want you to go to Jericho and spy it out. So they went and they came into the house of a harlot. It was like an inn. It was like a little hotel. A harlot was there. Her name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Verse 2, it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out our land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman 
had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the two men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out, and I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But guess what? Look at verse 6. She had brought them up to the roof, and she had hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, you've got all kinds of questions in your mind, morally, ethically, about this. How could she do that? How could she lie? But the author of James, nor the author of... Joshua right here is interested in that. Look at verse 8. Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said, Now, look at this. Look at her profession of faith, verse 8. I know, verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Look, we know that you're coming and I know that your God is the true God and I know he's given you our land, and I know that our city is going to be killed by the sword. Will you have mercy? Will you have mercy on me and my family? Will you please protect me? I mean, so here's an account of a woman named Rahab. She's an innkeeper in Jericho. Joshua sends a couple of men to spy out the city and her house, her inn, was the logical place to stay because it was right on the city wall. The king of Jericho gets word of this. There's Israelite spies in our city. So he sends officials to Rahab's house to arrest them, but she falsely reported that the spies had left the city and they had already gone out. And she sent the soldiers off to capture them. But in reality, she hid them on the roof. And then she, she confesses the Lord, Yahweh, is the only true God. There is no other God. He alone is the Lord. He is the God who saves. Now, what is the point of Joshua chapter 2? Back to our text there. By her action, her faith was put on the line. Because had she been discovered by the king of Jericho, I mean, she could have been executed. Her family could have been executed. But in the boundless grace of God, God preserved her, spared her, and used her for God's glory. As imperfect a woman she was. With her sin, with her fault, with her disobedience, she was still a woman of faith. 
And the Bible says in James 2.25, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? Meaning, was not her faith in the true and living God, the faith which saves her, was that not demonstrated? Was it not validated when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? What's the point? She put herself at risk because of her love for others. Do you do that? Abraham, an example of faith, is love for God. Rahab, an example of true faith with godly works because of her her love for others. I mean, she put herself at risk. Do you? For others? I mean, what, what is true love? It's not looking to self. It's looking to others. It was in 1854 in London, during the cholera outbreak, Charles Spurgeon said this, all day long, sometimes all night, I went about from house to house. I saw men, I saw women dying, and how glad they were to see my face. Many people were afraid to enter their houses lest they should catch the deadly disease. But we who had no fear of the disease, we spoke of Christ, and we spoke to people of their eternal souls, and people listened. That's love. I'll put myself at risk so that I can love you, care for you, Well, it just might not be safe. That wasn't a concern for Rahab. Well, it might not be what's best for me. Well, that wasn't Spurgeon's thought. The love of Jesus Christ for you, Christian, the love of Jesus Christ for you was a costly love. I mean, he went to the cross for you. What has your love cost you as you love others? With the love that you've received from him, how has your love been costly toward others? How how do you sacrifice for others? How, How do you show your love for others? How can you think and reflect and ponder and examine my life, my actions, my conduct? Am I living for others? Or am I living for self? And the conclusion of the whole section, verse 26, after talking about Abraham and his faith in God and obedience showing itself in love for him, Rahab and her faith in God showing itself in obedience and her love for others, the end of our section, verse 26, James 2, 26, the body without the spirit is nothing but a dead corpse. 
So faith, without the demonstration of a life of works, is dead. Oh, don't miss what God is doing. Before I draw this to a close, don't miss what God is doing. Here are two examples of people who were justified, made right with God by faith, but then they lived it out and they showed that faith by a life of works. Abraham and Rahab. Get this. The gospel includes men and women. The gospel is for pious Jews and pagan Gentiles. The gospel is for the rich and it's for the poor. The gospel is for the highest social rank and for the lowest social rank. The gospel is for the ignorant and the immoral. The gospel is for any and all sinners to come freely to Jesus. And God can save you. Bring your excuse. Bring it to the cross. The Lord Jesus can save you. He can justify you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name. You're not saved by your works. You'll never go to heaven by your works. You'll never escape hell by your works. The only way to go to heaven is by casting yourself on the mercy of God, acknowledging I am. I'm a really big sinner. And oh Lord, I deserve the just, the fair wrath of God. Have mercy on me, Lord. And when he does that heart change and when he saves you and transforms you and gives you a new nature, you will be in a whole new kingdom. Kingdom of light. Kingdom of the beloved son. And you will Seek to live for him. I want to close by telling you a true story. I want you to meet her. Her name is Barb. Barb is a senior citizen, but she prefers a senior saint. But Barb has a lot of health problems, a lot. She's also a recent widow. She has a home to keep up as well. Many people may have looked at Barb and they say, well, no no use expecting Barb to do much in the church or the community anymore, right? Wrong, she would say. In spite of her limitations, her faith in her Savior continues to work actively and continually and dynamically. Now listen to this. Barb and her late husband, they had no children together. They they couldn't have kids. So they made it their goal to have a ministry to other families and their children in their local church. But now that Barb is all alone, Barb, I suppose, could sit back and do her own thing and say, well, my help My help is gone with my husband. He's passed. I can't do this anymore. But no, Barb continues to take the initiative. She labors to visit others in her church. She even writes letters of gospel verses to the children in her church. She makes it her own ministry. It's hard for her, but she wants to serve and pray and have others in her home one time a month. That's a lot of work for her. 
Barb even said, as I have sought to do this, even with my husband's passing, other people have wanted to join me in these actions of service toward other people in the church. So Barb, this lady, this older lady, now, now a widow, she, she had and continued a working love for others. It was a proactive love. It was an initiating love. It was a, a love of action. But isn't it the case? Sometimes people say, well, there's a need there, there's a need there, nobody reaches out to me, nobody greets me, nobody says that. There's a need in the church. Why doesn't somebody do something around here? Rather than wanting to be that somebody, to serve and take the initiative to care for others. James chapter 2, we read that Abraham proved his faith by his love, love for God. Rahab proved her faith by her obedience and care for others. Barb, Barb was similar. She continued to demonstrate her faith by her love for God and her love for others. And here's what she would say. She would say, I may not be the quickest woman around, but I want to be a quiet and diligent worker. Serving my God and serving my Savior and serving those around me in my local church. What an example. What, what, what a great example we have in Barb. Like Barb, how can you, how can you live out your faith? Sacrificial love for God. Sacrificial love for others, like Abraham, like Rahab. How can you be proactive and initiating and thoughtful and prayerful? With God's help, by God's grace, and with much prayer, seeking to put your faith in action. May the Lord help me and help you to do that for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chapter that you have given to us, so probing, so deeply penetrating to show us our sin and yet to show us the great call of God that you have for us as your beloved children. What a great gospel. What a great salvation. Lord, would you take our lives, take our lives and let it be fully consecrated, fully given to you, O God, for your use, for your service, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.